Amen. You may grab a seat or a spot on your blanket or whatever it is you're doing here this morning. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if you're not aware, kids, you are free to go to Kids Church if your parents want you to go. Um, we have some people back here in the playground. Uh, our Alethea Jr. folks are ready to love on your kid if you want to send your kid there. We'll have a little lesson time and playing on the playground. That's up to you. You can follow the SP children and Daniel. You can stay there as well since you are a child as well. So <laughs> a few claps. There we go. All right. Um, Anyway, good morning. It is so good to see you guys uh, bright and early. I know that some of you guys, specifically the college students, are struggling right now this early in the morning. This is what before 10 a.m. looks like, guys. Um, the sun does come up, and it's good. Uh, it has been 13 weeks since we last gathered in person, and man, am I grateful for us to be able to be here um, this morning. We will continue uh, to the best of our ability to keep this environment as safe as possible. Um, I just read yesterday uh, how much safer it is for us to be doing this outdoors than indoors, even with or without a mask. Uh, but we will continue to gather out here for as long as we feel like it's, it's safe before, it, before we're ready to move back inside. Um, and this will allow you guys to wear a mask or not wear a mask if you don't want to. Um, as exciting as it is for us to see one another, I know that many of you guys have pretty much been wanting us to meet since the first week we canceled the service. Um, use some common sense with social distancing over the next few weeks. And if you are not feeling well, stay home until your symptoms clear. Please, that's what I always ask. As a parent of young kids, um, I know how quickly the flu and any disease spreads very quickly, especially with children. Um, so that being said, I'm glad to be able to gather again this morning. If this is your first time um, here with us this morning, uh, we have some scripture journals that we'd like to give you guys. Uh, Theo in the back can hand you one. Just raise your hand if you want one. This is our gift to you. It'll help you track and follow along with what we've got going on uh, this morning. And if you have a Bible or one of those scripture journals, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 19. That is where we are going to be uh, this morning. And as we have studied the book of Acts as a church, uh, what, I've, what I have been trying to remind us and what Pastor Daniel has been trying to remind us and anyone else who has taught during this time is that the book of Acts is the story of the start of the local church after Jesus's resurrection and ascension into heaven. And we said that the entire book of Acts kind of hinges on that promise made in Acts chapter one, verse eight, where God promises to empower the church with the Holy Spirit and that the church would go forth and the gospel would go forth into Judea, into Samaria, uh, and to the ends of the earth. And so what we've seen as we've been in the book of Acts together is that God is sending the Holy Spirit to empower and fulfill that promise. We've seen the gospel preached. We've seen new churches planted. We've seen God using the disciples and performing miracles through them. We've seen uh, Gentiles invited into the family of God. And, and for me, that always gets me excited because my family was in Northern Europe somewhere worshiping uh, Thor and Odin and all those guys. And so I'm glad that the gospel went forward so that my ancestors eventually could hear the gospel. And it's been amazing just to see God keep his promise to the disciples. And as you heard in our scripture reading this morning, as Brent read that just a moment ago, 
the church is now starting to be planted in Ephesus, which is this major city in modern day Turkey, and a riot breaks out because of the church. There's a guy by the name of Demetrius. He's mad at the church because his business has been ruined. He had this trade as a silversmith where he would create little uh, silver idols of the goddess Artemis. And you know maybe he cares about his God, but let's be honest, business is the reason why Demetrius is so upset. And just as an aside, I always love when I'm reading this story, I'm like, if you have to make your God with your own hands, it's probably not a great God. Like if you are creating it with your own hands, probably not great. And so here we have, right, Demetrius raising up kind of a riot inside the city of Ephesus. And he says this, she whom all of Asia and the world would worship. So he's trying to incite them to anger, the same level of anger he has. Now, here's a problem, right? If all of Asia wants to worship Artemis, why does he feel threatened by the gospel? Why does he feel threatened by the church's expansion in Ephesus? And so just keep that in the back of your mind as we continue to look at that. And as, uh, as Demetrius preaches to the crowd and kind of gets them riled up, right? He, he, he yells, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city is filled with confusion and they drag out some of Paul's companions. The crowds continue to rage against Paul and his companions for disrupting the worship of Artemis. And so I want to ask you this question, right? The, the city of Ephesus, Artemis was their goddess. This is who they cared about. This is what they worshiped. This is what they were all about. Uh, this is what their culture was kind of centered around. As, this is where Artemis' home was. This is where her temple was. And so I want to stop and ask you this question. What would possibly cause this kind of response from a city? What would cause a group of people to respond and riot the way that they do? What would cause a silversmith like Demetrius to be worried that he is going to lose his entire livelihood? Could you imagine a city where there was no money to be made through evil because of the church? What I want to propose to you guys this morning is what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 19 is what happens when the gospel really takes root in a city and ultimately takes root in a culture. It uproots and overthrows the idols of that culture and those that are not changed by the power of the gospel are in fear because their entire livelihood is going to crumble around them. Could you imagine in our own city, if the the city of Gainesville, people were saved and it drastically changed the economic climate of our city. Sex trade, right, was no longer looked after, right? No one wanted to go to strip clubs, right? The pornography industry completely died. Could you imagine if the church was moving with the kind of power and fervor that it is here in Acts chapter 19, the changes that we would see, right? I would argue that even a lot of the unrest that we've seen in the last two weeks in our country over racial disparity, no matter where you land on the political spectrum, those that follow Jesus and know him look at racial inequality and they are mortified by it. And the type of rioting we see in the face of injustice is because the church sees things not in line with the gospel and they push back. 
This is what that should look like, that riots break out and city officials have to intervene because the gospel has the power to change entire cultures and what people care about. Only the gospel has the power when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to equip and empower normal everyday people like we see here in Acts 19 to see entire cities changed. And so we're gonna slowly kind of work through parts of Acts 19 that we haven't seen yet. And I want you to see, right, what God is doing. I'm gonna start in verse eight, but let me just catch you up really quickly what we see right before we start in verse eight. At the end of Acts 18, as Josh shared with us last week, Apollos is teaching in Corinth. He was confused about the gospel and how to properly teach that to people. And he was corrected by Priscilla and Aquila. And so as Apollos continues to do gospel work and plant the church there in Corinth, Paul moves on to Ephesus here at the beginning of Acts chapter 19. And in Ephesus, Paul meets some of the disciples uh, who are there already. And as he gets there, he starts questioning them and asks them if they know what and who the Holy Spirit is. And they're like, what's a Holy Spirit? We have no idea what or who that is. And so Paul teaches them and lays hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. They begin to use the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that is where I wanna pick up and read the text starting in verse eight. And what we're gonna see in verses like eight through 20 is about how many verses we're gonna be able to dive through slowly this morning. What we are going to see is five things that God does through the church as the idols of Ephesus are overthrown. We're gonna see kind of five consistent themes that the church should be doing, right, to see this kind of change. And so what, what, what we'll see is that a radical change is gonna occur inside this city as the affections of people are stirred towards Jesus by the Holy Spirit, empowering them to testify of the gospel and what Jesus has done to change their lives that the church is going to do these things consistently. So look at, look at verse eight with me as we start. And he entered the synagogue, that's Paul, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so what we see here is Paul's typical method of ministry, what he does anytime he heads into a new city. It says he spoke boldly. He reasoned with uh, the Jews inside the synagogue. Uh, he persuaded them about the kingdom of God. And once that became difficult, he heads into the hall of Tyrannus. The hall of Tyrannus was likely an auditorium that was used for scholarly lectures in Ephesus during this time. And so Paul went there and he just started preaching. And I want you to notice what Luke says is true of Paul once this happens. He says, this continued for two whole years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Could you imagine that? What if I told you that here at Aletheia Church, you know, we were raising up somebody to go plant a church, kind of like Paul. They were going to go to Orlando. And two years later, we get reports back from people in Orlando that, the, that 
that the guy we raised up and the church uh, members that were with them in Orlando, that they did such a great job witnessing to the glory of Jesus in Orlando that the entire city of Orlando had heard the gospel. What, what would our response be to that? If we, if, we, if we heard that, we would be like, dude, this guy, you know, he needs to be on all of the church conference circuits, possibly needs to be on television. You know, this, this guy needs to write a book, maybe even 10 books, because that's what you do when you're a Christian. You become popular, right? You write a book so that everyone else can read it, right? This, guy's, this guy knows everything. We need this guy to be the next Christian celebrity, right? Uh, heralding what the church is supposed to be. And yet that is what is going on in Ephesus, just this amazing movement of God through Paul and the other disciples that while they are there, they are relentless in sharing the gospel with anyone they come in contact with. And that's the first thing we see about the church in Ephesus that causes them to create this sort of cultural climate and change in the city there, that they have a relentless commitment to sharing the gospel that they are unashamed of why they exist, why they are there, and what they are supposed to be doing. And this relentless commitment to sharing the gospel led to some amazing results in that city. And I want to just pause and, and, and have you guys ponder for a moment. One of our kind of taglines and things we always talk about here at Aletheia is just be the church. Be the everyday church. That's what we want to be. We don't want to be the church just on a Sunday morning or for the last 13 weeks online, you know, whatever that may be. We don't just want to be the church for an hour or two on a Sunday morning. And if you're involved in a community group, maybe for an hour or two throughout the week. And we believe that the church is the people of God who are witnessing to the glory of Jesus at all times. And what we see is that takes commitment. Right? It took commitment for Paul and the other disciples who were around him to live that out every day. It says for two years. I would imagine that during that time, Paul probably got tired sometimes. That he probably grew weary at times. And yet there was a commitment amongst the community there to be committed to this sort of witness for the long haul. And as they stayed committed to the proclamation of the gospel, talking about Jesus, how he had changed their lives for, for the good, for forever, that as they worshiped Jesus together, we see this movement kind of well up in the city and that Luke says, Goes, is so bold as to say, everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Everyone had come in contact with someone that knew Jesus and had told them about what Jesus Christ had done. And so then we move into verse 11 and we're gonna see something else that God does through the church here. That not only do they have a relentless commitment to sharing the gospel, but look at what else happens here. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, 
Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Right? So this is one of those stories that when you read it in Scripture, uh, one, it just causes me to fall in love with the Bible more and more. But, but you can't make this kind of thing up. Like, there's no reason to make up this type of story. It's the kind of thing that it's either absolutely an outrageous lie or it's true and actually happened. There's no in-between on a story like this. And so we see here extraordinary miracles are occurring with Paul and the disciples in Ephesus. People were hearing about Jesus. And then we get to this story that Luke shares about these uh, seven sons of Sceva, who was a, a, a priest. And they were seven sons of a, a Jewish high priest. And I love what Luke says the title of their job is. They are itinerant Jewish exorcists. Could you imagine that career path? Right? So you guys are like, what are you guys studying at UF? What do you guys want to be when you're a student? Yeah, I'm studying to be an itinerant exorcist. People are going to be like, what? What does that even mean? Right? And so we see right, this was a job in first century Ephesus that people could be itinerant exorcists, that they exorcise demons out of people. And so as they're doing this, they see, right, God is working through Paul and the other disciples. And their entire job is to, is to exercise these demons out of people. And as they do that, right, people believe that they have power, that they have this ability to rescue them from evil spirits. And as they see what God is doing through Paul and these other disciples, they start asking, well, wait a minute, like, these guys actually appear to have like some legit power on their side. Maybe we should use the power source that they're using to exercise these demons out of people because we want our business to be profitable and successful. And so they find this guy who has an evil spirit and they go to him, all seven of them, and they go to him and they're like, we are ordering you to leave this man in the name of Jesus who Paul talks about. Now notice how they don't claim to know Jesus. They don't claim to be a follower of Jesus. They don't claim to know who he is, but they know the power that is behind the church and what God is doing through these men and women in Ephesus. And so they want to tap in to that power source. And as they do that, the evil spirit goes full UFC on these seven guys, right? He's like, I don't know who you guys are. Get the stepping. Get out of my house. And it says this, they fled out of that house naked and wounded, which led to even more people hearing about Jesus and responding to the gospel. Think about this. The name of Jesus had become so prominent that non-believers were trying to use the power of the Holy Spirit and invoke the name of Jesus so that they could profit from it. And yet, the Holy Spirit did not back the, these non-believers, and instead, this opportunity that they tried to take advantage of blew up in their face, and it caused an even greater amount 
of attention to be brought to Jesus. This is God's grace. And the second thing we see God doing through his church as we see culture being changed and idols being overthrown is that God uses supernatural means to draw people to himself. And here's, here's what I would say. It doesn't have to be that type of miracle to be a miracle that God is still active and doing these types of things through his church today, but it also might look different than this. It doesn't have to be Jewish exorcists being fought off by a demon and that only Paul and those that know the Lord who have the power of the Holy Spirit residing inside of them are able to do these things, right? Here are some things that I have seen, I have personally witnessed God do in the lives of believers in the last 15 years that I've known Jesus Christ. I've seen God heal people from cancer to where the doctors, when they had walked in and given the, th this gentleman uh, his chances at living, they're like, yeah, you have like 20% chance to live, maybe less. You have an inoperable brain tumor. And he says, well, God told me to operate on it. Go ahead and operate on it. They operated on it, fully removed it, went through chemo. Now, most people don't make it through chemo after this. Right. Continue to make it through that we've seen God heal people and rescue people from cancer. I've seen God people rescue some of my close friends and people I know from addiction to drugs and alcohol. I've seen God save marriages that were in the throes of adultery. God is in the business of doing miracles so that he might put his power on display through his church. And a church that believes these miracles are possible and magnify God's saving work, bring a great worship to Jesus, just like we see here in Acts 19, where it says, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That as this church in Ephesus made a commitment to sharing the gospel and testifying of God's grace, and as they lived in such a way that it allowed the Holy Spirit to do miracles in the lives of those around them, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And so after this, after these Jewish exorcists are sent out of this room and beat up by this guy with an evil spirit, look at what happens next. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So what we see here in verse 18 is the third thing that was going on in, in Ephesus here that was allowing this church to have such a massive cultural impact in that city. That he was moving in the lives of men and women inside of that church to create an authentic and loving community. Think, think about this. It says, many who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And you may say, Kevin, how are you getting that there was an authentic and loving community there from that verse? I want you to think about this for a second. How often are you willing to be vulnerable with someone that you don't trust? Not a hand went up, right? None of us are willing to share the deepest parts of our hearts and soul, the, the dark places where our hearts go. And we're not willing to share those with people that haven't displayed to us that they are trustworthy, 
that they are authentic, that they are going to take that information and do with it uh, whatever they will to our benefit, to display love toward us. See, what we see here is that they were vulnerable about sin and trusted one another with that vulnerability. That doesn't happen overnight, right? The church at Ephesus became known for authentic, loving community because they were an authentic, loving community. Here's, Here's what I would say. Many of the churches I've been a part of, and I would say that even our church might suffer from this sometimes, is we say, oh, we wanna be an authentic, loving community. But then when we ask people what's going on in their lives, they say, well, I said a cuss word today, will you pray for me? Okay, yes and amen. But I would say authentic, true community looks more like this. And I'm gonna share an example from my own life of a place where my heart actually went at one point in time. Someone asked me, Kevin, how are you guys doing? And this was a couple years ago when Josiah was in the hospital struggling from epilepsy. I said, Kevin, how are you doing? This was somebody that I knew and trusted. And so this was my response to them. And this is the type of uh, authentic community that we need to strive for and fight for because it's where true change can happen and where God works. This is what I said. I was like, man, I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm struggling right now. I'm mad at God. I can't understand why God would ask Jackie and I to come here, start a church, and then put us through this hell. I'm mad at him. And not only that, I know somebody right now who has a healthy family and he's actively committing adultery on his wife. Why is God punishing me and not that guy? Where is his punishment? What have I done to deserve this? And it was in that moment of just rawness, right, that God used the guy that I was talking to just say to me, brother, I hear you. I'm sorry you're going through this. Maybe you're not being punished. But I can tell you this, the fact that you want God to punish that guy, but not you for your sin when you know what Jesus has done for you displays a wickedness in your own heart that needs to be repented of right now. How many people would be brave enough to tell a guy whose son is in the hospital that they're in sin and need, need to repent? That's the type of love and authentic community that I needed in that time and that God met me with. And in that, this community was real, it was raw, and it was authentic, but they preached a big gospel. They preached that no matter how messed up you are, God's grace is sufficient to forgive you for that sin even if your heart is wicked enough to run to a place that you would wish harm on another guy's child because of the suffering you're going through. They take one another in as broken as they are and they love one another enough not to let them stay that way. And as they did this with one another, we see this beautiful example of how the church loves one another and this became attractive in Ephesus. People saw the beauty of lives being changed and authentic community happening and they wanted to hear more about Jesus. And as that happened, look at what happens in verse 19. 
And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So not only do they work on authentic and loving community with one another, but then they exemplify in that community gospel-centered repentance. That they are a community that exemplifies gospel-centered repentance. It says those who practice magic arts, and I'm not 100% sure what that is, could have been divination, uh, trying to raise uh, past people from the dead to life again and, and you know, talk, use a medium to talk to those spirits. It could have been uh, some sort of like psychic reading. I'm not entirely sure what that entailed in Ephesus. But the people that were coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior were so gripped by God's love for them They were so emboldened as they saw the gospel proclaimed, as they saw miracles, as they experienced authentic and loving community for the first time, that this motivated them not to just confess their sins, but turn from them. It says they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. I did the research. This would be roughly about 6 million US dollars today. That's how much of an economic impact this had. Think about that. Six million dollars in that city went up in flames because of the power of Jesus Christ to change their lives. That is repentance a true response and proclamation of grace led to life change and them putting sin to death. It reminds me of the story of Zacchaeus when Jesus is walking through the city and Zacchaeus meets Jesus. And as Jesus tells him, hey, I'm gonna go to your house today, Zacchaeus repents on the spot of his sin of robbing the the Jewish citizens through taxes and says, Lord, I'm gonna restore everything fourfold which was more than what the Bible demanded him to do because he had experienced true repentance, that his sin had been laid before him. And as that sin was laid bare before him, he truly repented of this. What is God calling you to repent of this morning? What has a stranglehold on your life that God is asking you to turn over to him, to confess to him and put to death? If we live that out as the church, I promise you, people will see the power of God move in us. And as that power moves through us, as lives are changed, people will want to know about Jesus. The last thing we see is this, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The last thing we see occurring in this church at Ephesus is a greater and increasing worship of Jesus. 
right? As they proclaim the gospel, as they see God perform miracles in the lives of those around them, as they live out authentic and loving community with one another, and as they take sin seriously and confess and repent of it, what ultimately is a byproduct of all of that in their lives is that this church saw a greater worship of Jesus inside their church, but also outside of it as more and more people heard the gospel and came to worship Jesus together. We see this two separate places. Verse 17, it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That word extolled means to enthusiastically praise. And then in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The truth about Jesus continued to be shared and those that worshiped him grew in number and fervor. And so here's what I I want us to pause and reflect on and think about this morning. Can we say this of our church? Can we say this about ourselves as a member of this church? This was some 2,000 years ago that Luke is recording this story about this church being planted in Ephesus. What will Aletheia Church's story be 2,000 years from now? Right, what will people say of it? Because I know what the history of the Ephesian church is. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Let me share it with you. starting in verse one of Revelation chapter two. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So we see that, right? We see this testimony, right? The Ephesian church, right? Even at the end, right? God is saying to them, hey, I've seen what you guys are doing. You're committed to the truth. You're patient. You're enduring, right? These are all great things. And then look at verse four. But I have this against you. Uh Uh-oh that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He says, you've abandoned your first love. Well, what was their first love? Jesus. Apparently somewhere along the way, the Ephesian church became so committed to truth, so committed to standing up against false teaching, so committed to patiently enduring suffering and trials that they forgot why they were doing that in the first place. They lost their first love. Jesus, who motivated them to do all these things. All the things that we talked about, right? A relentless commitment to sharing the gospel, seeing God 
used supernatural miracles to draw attention to himself, creating authentic and loving community that was grace-centered, not law-centered, exemplifying towards one another gospel-centered repentance and continuously growing in their worship of Jesus. What we see in the church at Ephesus is a failure to remember why they exist. We have a saying here, it's all about Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus, there'd be no reason for us to gather. There'd be no reason for us to respond to our lives the way that we are. But because Jesus really was a person who was God's son in the flesh, who came 2,000 years ago, lived a perfect life on our behalf, preached the coming of the kingdom of heaven, and then was crucified, dead, and buried to pay the penalty for our sin, and then rose again in victory over sin and death, and gives that victory to us because Jesus Jesus really did those things is the reason we exist. And so what will be said of us? Right, what will the angel of the church write about us? In gospel community this week, you're going to be asked how we can live these things out. What does it look like for us in our gospel communities and as a church at large to live out these five things and be striving for them to the glory of God? But for, but for right now, I wanna give us an opportunity to respond to what we see right here. Will we remain faithful to our first love, Jesus? Or will we go the way of so many churches? Will we become about something other than Jesus, when we become about something religious or tied to the church, but not about Jesus himself. It is my belief that if we feed our affections for Jesus, God will empower us to overthrow idols, not only in our own lives, but to see us make an impact in our city and our culture that will see lives transformed and set free from idols. But it must be first centered around Jesus and all that he has done.